you explain, if that's a good place to start, what is ray tracing? Yeah. Um, ray tracing, I think, really simply put, is just an algorithm that approximates the behavior of light as it interacts with objects and materials in a scene. And a scene in this case is like if you think of like a film scene or a game level um, right. or even just a still render of a, of a phone or a camera or an object in an advertisement. So essentially, all it does is it, 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 it simulates the way uh, light comes into a scene if it hits mm -hmm. like a reflective object like a, like a like a mirror for example or a transparent object like a window it's going to simulate how light interacts with that and that gives us um, some really important visual cues like shadows reflections things that if they didn't exist in image that you took for example you would have no idea where things are in the scene the depth perception that you have is not there anymore um so being being able to to approximate the behavior of light is really important in making things look plausible in 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 the case that you have something that isn't realistic like a pixar movie like it's uh -huh. It looks like that but you still have shadows you still have reflections the, like color still influences um what you see and on the opposite side if you're you know a company making a product and you want that car to look perfectly realistic but it doesn't exist yet you still want ray tracing so that the car looks exactly as it would look like in real life but you haven't made the car yet or you haven't made the part or product yet so i think it's a really important algorithm it's been around for a long time by the way this is like some some stuff that was done um, in the 70s and 80s, and um, computing power, essentially, the, the capabilities of computers have held back the implementation of ray tracing um, in many markets. Yeah, it, it's, um, I have a comment and then a question. I was watching um, the latest Avatar movie. The first <laughs> one, from a visual perspective, I didn't think could blow my mind. Like I. I was totally immersed, and honestly, I didn't think I would be. I thought it was going to be hype. Um, I was completely sucked in. The second movie, <coughs> um, the story was interesting, but when they got into the water, it was it was another level of like it, it just defies logic. And I know we're going to eventually tie this to digital infrastructure and other things, but just as as we imagine um, the the um, the ability to portray that or anything that our mind can imagine, it it's really unbelievable. Yeah, it's it's really crazy to think that someone can go make a movie and yes, it's expensive, it takes a long time, but it's possible to make a completely computer generated movie where the people are essentially aliens and water <laughs> is like fully realistic. Like, right. um, yeah, I, I had the same experience watching them, watching both movies, actually, to, to your point, it's you watch the first one, you're like, there's, there's no way this can get better. Like, right. this is really good. This is right. really good. The um, simple things like the, the, the skin materials in the first avatar, right. it, those kind of things make a big difference. The, the fact that there's some simulation there also helps with, with, with the body. Um, but going into water, water is always a place that's really difficult to simulate. And it's even more difficult to make it look good when you sit while you're simulating it. And so this is something that um, that James Cameron has been working on for decades now. And like these these critical pieces of technology that enable something like Avatar to to look as good as it looks. Um, but uh, like to tie it back to to digital twins and like real applications there in in right. enterprise, 
it's the, it, it's the same type of problem that you have when you want to simulate, you know, how does a wind turbine, uh, you know, interact uh, with, with the ocean floor or, uh, and those kinds of things. And so it's really important to be able to do it both for computer consumer graphics and movies and games and television, but also to use the same techniques and algorithms for product design and engineering as well. Did ray tracing um, replace something or were there other technologies? I know you said it's been around at least conceptually for a while. Um, but And as it continues to evolve, it's like saying TVs have been around for a while and we, you know, we're at AK and moving on into um, quantum uh, dot computers and all this other, or uh, TVs and all this other cool stuff. What are some of the other technologies that, that are coming along or have been there to fool us into thinking this thing that came out of an imagination is real? Yeah, that's a great question. There is a different um, uh, approach to solving this problem. It's called rasterization. Mm. And it, it's really what the GPUs are really, really good at. So when you get like really high frame rates, when you play like Call of Duty on a on, on a modern GPU today, mm -hmm. all of that's rasterized. The, the, the great thing about rasterization, because it's been the focus of hardware GPU vendors for so long, mm -hmm. is that it's really fast. The downside is that it doesn't account for light. It, it's not simulating light. All it does is it takes a triangle and paints a color on it. You can do a lot more stuff with that. For example, a lot of our, our favorite game developers have figured out how to make that look like it's ray traced. And, and that's like, these are workarounds because mm -hmm. ray tracing is too computationally intensive. Um, it requires like changes to the game itself to do to do ray tracing. Um, uh, so a, a, everyone's essentially figured out how to make rasterization look as close to ray tracing as possible. The, the 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 problem with that, however, is we we, we always forget that. Um, it, like to your point about motion graphics, when things are moving, you have to do you have to be able to paint thousands of frames. I mean, if you're playing a game at sixty frames per second, you have to be able to literally approximate shadows without knowing where real lights are or where the right. shadows should be. Um, on a console that you know millions of people might have downloaded this game, got to play this game, right? So if right. you can imagine the complexity in approximating what like the behavior of light is without even having the algorithm in place is it's insane it's really crazy it's it's i would say it's 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 a huge portion of the time money power and effort that goes into making this, this kind of content and it's much easier if you can just flip a switch and turn on like something like ray tracing which is physics based and if you have a reflective material in your in your scene well you have reflections already it's good to yeah. go you have to like go find and paint them in and you know you're relying on the the, the artists the technical ability to paint something that looks good and there are certainly artists that can do crazy things and we know them very well and it's it's amazing to see what they can do but in the end it's like why why do you have to do all of that effort if you can just flip a switch and in theory um things will look physically possible right off the bat no effort right it's almost like rasterization is you're describing to somebody who's a sketch artist and they're sketching and ray tracing is I'm, you know, I, I'm actually creating it, like the thing's doing it, there's no sketch, this is what it looks like. And when I was a kid um, in high school, my dad for 20 something years was on the shuttle program uh, down at Mission Control. And mm -hmm. one day, I, I think the statute of limitations, he's long since retired, has expired, so I can confess this, but <clears throat> we got to go in with him um, and go to the shuttle simulator and they mm -hmm. had multiple simulators, this particular simulator. And I'm looking at the complexity in, this would have been what, 81, something like that, 80, 81. 
which seems crazy. Like you probably were even born then or barely born, right? But that like, but at that time, this thing was so <clears throat> amazing. And they were using these tools. Um, one simulator is just how you manipulate all of the um, devices within the, within the cockpit. But the other one was everything, you know, the robot arm to get stuff back in to the uh, shuttle. And it was incredible how important, keep in mind with whatever the technology was in 1980, like it wasn't even a, you know, x86 yet, like as a, as a um, you know, a Radio Shack, uh, I don't know what it was, right? My watch has more power than that thing. But they had to simulate the shadows because with those bays open, as you got gear back into or whatever the mission was, if you were off, and we saw tragically sometimes, if you miss by millimeters, mm -hmm. um, you miss everything. There, you know, there's a, you tear the skin of the shuttle, you break some mechanism, and now the bay door stuck over. So they had to practice a million times before they ever went to space. And the shadows can so, because you have all these celestial bodies, you've got this gear moving, um, and so it's not just entertainment, like in, in that way, I'm sure there's a million more we could talk about. I've got to be able to um, simulate what this looks like so that when I do it in real time, I not only know what it looks like when it's done right, I know when it looks like when it's done wrong, right? And that's how we, like I got to have my senses. I'm not going to be out there smell and taste, so I've got to do this visually. Um, it just seems incredible that we're, that, I mean, are we talking about the same thing? Is this the same idea? Yeah, the, the, this is definitely the future of like all manufacturing. Um, I think space is a great example of um, the, the constraints placed on building something for space is is insane. Like you know, you don't want to send someone up there to try to to try to troubleshoot a problem, right? You want you want right. to like look at all the millions of possible scenarios, like you're in Doctor Strange, and at the end of it, you know which one's the perfect one, and you're right. good to go. Right. Like you want that and you want right. that for every product. Like if you're if you if you wanted to go build a new space company or a new car company. Right. Like right. you don't want to go build a manufacturing facility in the beginning and then start rolling cars through that pipeline. What you want to do really is to design every part in on a computer, essentially simulate every part on the computer independently as part of the car, the car in the environment, all of those levels. And then once you're satisfied with the result, you go and you pull the trigger and you're good to go. You go to, you can go to production with that and you know exactly how it's going to perform. So I think space is a great, like I, the, that's probably one of the earliest examples, publicly available examples to the right. defense as well, but right. space is a great one because you just, it's just not feasible. It's not economically feasible to build 25 prototypes and see how, how they fail. You really just want to know once, sign it up once and it's like a perfect mission. You're good to go. So it's really about like reducing the risk on on a really large complex um, project, and it gets better as the project gets more complex and more unfeasible in its current state. I think. Yeah. Um, you, this reminds me of um, I can I think his name was Jeff. I I apologize. I cannot remember his name now. But he was one of the guys um, in the robotics program at Saab. And mm -hmm. I know this is, I believe this to be true. Uh, I fact-checked it once before, and you know, the, the interwebs is always accurate. But basically he said, we have mapped the surface of the moon much better than we have mapped our oceans. Yeah. And so as you imagine, um, for as complex, I mean, space for humans brings a level of complexity because it's trying to kill you the entire time, right? It's a very hostile environment. Mm -hmm. Equal to or greater than, is ocean at depth, 
around before you ever get into seismic areas or magnetic anomaly areas or whatever and in, and when you're one of the things he was commenting was look in the celestial space when you're in that vacuum actually from a light perspective um it's almost black and white it's not black and white but it's it's much less complex to evaluate and do things there than in the ocean that has um all of the filtering that's going on, all of the particulates that are moving through that you really don't have in a vacuum. Generally, I'm speaking generalizations. All of the complexity of the environment, marine life, all of these other things. And then, oh, by the way, pressure that is trying to rip this entire thing apart. And I got to imagine some of these tools that we're talking about to be able to help us to explore oceans. If I'm deploying, for example, I'm in the data center business. Microsoft has deployed data centers in the ocean to use tidal wave to help power them and to cool them. Like we're we're constantly seeking out where we can get more resources and how do we, how do we, um, uh, in this case, use the ocean. It seems like we're going to need technology like this to go in there and simulate an environment that is as difficult as different kinds of complexity, but it's as difficult. Yeah, I think like simulating uh, like how a containerized like building or data center uh, would operate like under <clears throat> water is I think it's a great example because the reason why Microsoft or a company like that would want to do that is that's more cost effective, right? But right. Um, on, on one end, on the far end of maybe like the Stone Ages, if you were to just take a container, throw it in like off the coast and see how it behaves, right? Does this right. work? No, okay, let's move it like four inches this way, right? Let's right. keep playing around with this, turn those knobs in real life. It's quickly will become way too expensive. So that, you know, they, why would we do this in the first place? So right. if there's the ability to simulate how, 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 if I go, you know, place that thing in, underwater somewhere, let's pick this specific, you know, location on the planet. Let's, let's put it there virtually, see how it behaves. If that's really cost effective, um, it, it enables more opportunities for optimizations, essentially. Your product gets better, it's easier to make it, and also you have a better idea of how it behaves. So you're absolutely right. Like, this is this is really critically important, and it'll become more important as, um, as more people want to do this type of simulation work. If it's unoptimized, you can imagine that a large portion of power consumed in, overall in the world, and also a large portion of power consumed in data centers, is going to be used for this purpose. And so it's really important to be ahead of that, uh, trend and to to have a solution available that can really address that problem because if you you can imagine this problem right now is like there's we can't we can't buy GPUs and a lot of the customers that we have they have data centers that can only fill a quarter of them because they run out of power too quickly and you can imagine right. if you double your the amount of simulations you do on on that hardware well you got to buy twice the amount of hardware and how's that going to happen so I think it's really interesting I know I answered like two to your questions but. <laughs> <laughs> Look, look, you're actually, uh, we are for sure landing on hardware, but before we do that, I'm, so we've talked about, um, like I'm, a, I'm not as big a gaming nerd as I used to be. Um, I'm not saying I had a human rogue on a PVP server in World of Warcraft or a number of other things I might confess to in a different life, but um, in all seriousness, so when I would think of ray tracing or GPU in the past, I would think of making a movie. I would think of playing a game. You started to talk about modern manufacturing, and I remember I heard you speak once, and it was just a, this fascinating idea, so I want to tease this out a little bit, which is, um, it was in the area of, uh, I think, an artist um, painting something, for example. And as I... Um, 
as that artist is is doing this creation, they have a, they have an idea in their mind. I'm thinking of a, like a, just a classic artist, you know, the Sistine Chapel or something. I have an idea in my mind, and I'm trying to express it across this canvas. And for most people, it takes decades to learn apply this paint in this way, wet, the final result in some amount of time in the future, dry, I, I got an approximation, but regularly they have to come back. I mean, that's why they're masters and it's, you know, whatever. But this, this barrier to entry, because you really have to master that skill. You were saying that, look, there's technology that exists and that's evolving that allows you accurately, as you create these things in a digital format, you can see what the final um, note is going to sound like or paintbrush is going to look like. All the way down, depending upon the, the, the infrastructure that you have, to literally the, the, um, the fiber strokes, if you want to get that detailed. Can you talk a little bit about that idea and then how you think it might apply to, we start with manufacturing, but just the number of possibilities you, you talk about. Yeah, I think computer graphics is really interesting because um, you're using a computer to create something that's going to be viewed on another computer at some point, whether it's like a TV or, a, or, or an iPhone or something. Right. Um, uh, it's really interesting just to um, just think about uh, if, if you start with a blank canvas on a computer and you start to add stuff to it, it, it starts out pretty easy. You can start adding, you know, objects, right. you can start painting those objects, you can still see things. But when you go to a level of complexity where you have um, uh, like a, a movie scene, you know, you're in some, some train station, I think is a good example. There is a there, there's a famous Pixar movie within a train station mm -hmm. that that caused a lot of issues on their on their infrastructure. Um, uh, when, when you go to that level, like you you it's it's really difficult from a feedback loop perspective to to have to wait minutes, hours, days, weeks, or months. And in many cases, it's it is it, you can wait hours to see like what you're doing. Right. Um, let, let, let's say you have a sphere. There's a very simple like unmodified sphere. You apply a material to it. It might take you a few seconds to see what that would look like. Right. And that's really you don't want to wait that long to see what it looks like, because if you apply that to maybe hundreds of objects in your scene. You're gonna be waiting a long time. Right. Like we, we do this. Like when when I first started this in 2014, we we played around with these tools on the nicest computers in the market. Right. Like we we bought the nicest, the fastest. We installed the tools. We optimized the tools, and we started to use it. And like even a simple simulation of taking a piece of cloth and it hitting a box, that took eight hours to simulate about 20 frames of that on a $25,000 computer. And so it's it's like you can imagine like if you have a lot of the stuff where you have you have a person that you're wanting to animate right and right. and his shirt's going to move around as he's moving around you're you're already into the weeks to months to, to wait for that to come back and that's all on computer it, it gets better if you have a data center right. or a you know farm or you can use the cloud right but your cost doesn't scale at all it's just it's just the other way you can do it quicker but then you're spending a million dollars to get that result and so um the, the way we think about it is like in in computer graphics it's the feedback loop that really matters. And an even better example for maybe some of our listeners is like, if, if you have, if you write code, mm -hmm. imagine you write, you write like some really great code and you go to compile it and you wait like two months. And <laughs> two months later, it comes back and you forgot like one letter, just one thing right. you forgot, a little thing, but you wouldn't have known because it took two months to compile. Like if you make a mistake in computer graphics, um, you're going to find out at the end when that render comes back. Right. 
maybe you don't have the ability to go re-render that frame maybe you just have to like paint over it literally just to make it look good and so um th this is a problem I, I, I like to look at it from the content creation perspective mm -hmm. because <clears throat> these are the th these are the artists that that have these amazing visions and the value that that they provide is always going to be limited by like the computer on the other end that can take their vision and make it reality and so the, the value of those artists is just limited by that. So why don't we just unlock their yeah. potential creativity on the manufacturing side? It's the same thing. Like, yeah, if it takes me as a startup 17 years to go design a car, that's a made up number. If it takes me a long time to go design a right. car um, as a startup, like I have to raise a lot of money. I have to convince a lot of people that they, they should wait a long time. And then also, even more importantly, the market might have changed so much that my car design is not no longer good. It's no longer, um, it's maybe not a hot market anymore. Maybe everyone's moved to buying trucks instead of sedans and you've designed a sedan um, right. for, for the European market, but you're in America, right? So I think there are like lots of, right. the, the, there are lots of risks when you, when, when the barrier to entry is so high. But if you can hire five guys and you can build a, a complete digital twins model you can validate that model in a real world uh, virtual environment that looks perfect it behaves exactly as it would behave and you can pick up the phone and say hey we, you know, we're going to raise some more money we're going to go make this car this is the perfect design we know it's going to work exactly as it's going to work you can go forward from there there's a lot less risk in that proposition and so it's the same kind of like you know you don't want to really wait the feedback loop shouldn't be very long ever for anything that we do at this point as, right. Especially exiting like the 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 industrial revolution, I think it's like, um, you know, whether you want to make a car, uh, a mug. I'm looking around my my office or anything that you make. <laughs> literally, you just want to be able to see what it looks like, and make decisions based off that 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 feedback. But if it takes forever, it's not worth it. Can I give you an example that I heard the other day? Um, I don't know how much this is. I know some of it is true now. The potential is blowing my mind, and the car reminds me of it. But this person was talking about shoes in particular sports shoes and so they were talking about and i was totally with them when they were talking about look creating the design uh the colors the look all the things that we might expect right where before with a car like you'd shape it in clay and you do other this other stuff so they they talked about how they they built the shoe and i was like okay that's really cool and then they started talking about here's how i can simulate the different materials the shoes yeah. made out of Oh, that's really interesting. And now here's the next level. So level three. Now I can, without having to put it on a machine that flexes it a thousand times, I can create, I can get 98% of that work done. I might do a sample to validate it, but I can get that flex and that torquing and apply the laws of physics in a certain way to see how long is that going to wear out? What happens if the human, um, or if you're like one of my kids who puts... Uh, little slippers on her animal, and I'm not going to rat Jessica out because I think that would be inappropriate as a parent. But um, <clears throat> but you know, if you're if you're pigeon toed, if you're you know whatever, if your feet work a certain way, you can simulate how um, how the shoe wears out, right? And so I'm like I'm listening to this. I'm like, wow, it's blowing my mind. They said, now let's take it to the next level. Say you're an elite athlete. If I can simulate the environment, the clay that that shoe's running on, the concrete of the launch pad, my personal new favorite for, sport for people my age and weight, disc golf. I literally did a f accidental flip off a disc golf pad not long ago. Terrified everybody. I wasn't hurt. Um, but anyway, they, they, they just talked about, look, some of this exists today. Um, 
and while we're talking about shoes, we're talking about cars, their point was, I can, I can now create the environment that the car lives in. I can create the weather conditions. I can create it, not just its look and not just its um, wind tunnel measurements, which is all baseline and important. Many times we stop there because I got to get it to market. And it takes a while to generate all that. But what if I could take that car and, uh, or whatever we're talking about and, and put it into a real-world environment that simulates these things um, there was just so many applications and my jaw just kept dropping. And they said, what the, the barrier is the cost. It's you, I would have thought it's the <laughs> software. And there is certainly the algorithms that you talked about for sure. I'm not trying to, so I don't want a bunch of rage email from the people who write these code that this, you know, that this is not important. That's not what I mean. But you can come up with this, the most amazing idea. You know, I'm Michelangelo, and I've got the most amazing idea to either for a, a, a statue I want to carve or a painting I want to do, but my chisel is the size of a number two pencil, and I've got to, you know, do this instead of having a wide array of uh, tools or palettes, or my paintbrush is three threads, and I've got to, you know, every day I got to go get make new paint or et cetera. And so they said this palette that we see, we're getting to learn how to, how to, you know, obviously create the visual and all this other stuff in whatever manufacturing that we're done, but I'm able to introduce it into an environment. For example, I can simulate the shelf life of a can of um, food. Will it actually last under these weather conditions or whatever? On and on and on. And it just blew my mind of possibilities. Now, I know some of that is hope to have or not if, uh, but when. Are we, am I understanding this correctly? Is this the right way to think about the potential of um, not just ray tracing, but the infrastructure that enables that? Yes. Um, there are, I think if, like, if we picked every company that made a product today that i think there'd be a great use case for every company um, every enterprise to use the sort of simulation flow uh to make the product better right. um, I, I i agree with you like it, it's definitely reducing cost um what we need to do is make sure that the these these engineers these artists have the right tools essentially right. to your point of like you know my if michelangelo has like the worst chisel in the world it's not really it's not going to be right. worth it Right. Or if it's your point, if it's a number two pencil, he's not going to make very much progress. Like, we'll right. see nothing out of him. Right. And so it's really important to arm the, the those artists and engineers with the right things. Um, but I think there's also going to be some added pressure in the future to ask um, from, from governments and um, watchdog organizations, like, what are you spending your money on? What are you spending your time on? Mm. Um, because... Uh, if you're, you know, if you make a plastic product and it finds its way into the ocean, um, what happens to that product? Has anyone ever simulated, um, you know, I'm not, it's not just plastic, it's any part that that, they, that that has some waste associated with it. We should be simulating how, how that plastic part, you know, interacts with the environment as it sits on the side of the road for hundreds, thousands, millions of years. Yeah. And I think that we're not there yet. And this is something that's going to happen in the future, I think, for sure, when, when we start getting questions like, Darwash, when you go make this product, you know, what happens when I die, when when the product is, you know, not useful right. anymore, it passes its life. And to your point about food, even like there's so there's so much efficiency that you can gain from making just anything. 
if you just have a lot of data about how it behaves in the real world. And I think when we talked about this previously, you, you made this great point about it's like it's it's reducing risk, but it's also reducing like the 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 risk vectors um, for a, I don't want this product to go wrong or to behave in an adverse way in a certain environment. Like what happens if rain, like, I think there's some basic examples. Like if you make like a teak chair, right. You're going to, okay, let's see how it behaves with water. Right. That's a, that's an obvious one. Right. But like right. what happens in other scenarios where maybe someone's going to throw it away into a dump and like, does it going to, is it going to biodegrade really efficiently or it's going to take forever. Right. So I think um, as, as time goes on, as, as more companies make, more products more quickly um a lot of the stuff's going to need to be simulated for and not just for you know the shoe was going to behave perform even better on your foot because it knows right what what you're trying to do with the shoe because right. you simulated it but it's on the other side as well it's like you know how's it going to impact the world it's also going to matter a lot and then also like do you consume all the power in the world to try to simulate the perfect part can we reduce that a little bit so that the the value add that this product provides the the world is positive, is a net positive over a long period of time. What is, um, I don't want to presume anybody knows what a GPU is, or if they think they know what it is, can you explain what it is and how it's different than a traditional computer part and its role in this explosion of technology that we're talking about? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll try to do it without going into the architectural kind of details okay. um, which i think are like probably too too low level and don't really matter i i, I would say that so gpus are really good at massive parallel work i think if you if you're if you're curious like okay why why would i use the gpu right. anything that is that you need massive parallelism for gpu is great for so okay. uh if you look at the screen that you guys are watching this on or or staring at right now there are millions of pixels on the screen, right? So a, a GPU is a great uh, uh, computing platform to draw pixels on a screen because there are millions of pixels. And uh, the the compute work that the GPU does is very similar for each pixel. It's just really, really massively parallel. So you want to draw as many pixels as you can as quickly as possible. That's where GPUs started. That's what they're really good at. For There are a lot of compute workloads uh, in the world that GPUs are really good at because these workloads are parallel, like mm -hmm. high computing, the simulation work that we talked about, and also, of course, AI workloads, which require mm -hmm. massive parallelism. A lot of data parallelism is required there. So GPUs are really good at that. Um, traditional computers, like C like the CPU that, that your computer is centered around, is not as parallel. It's very good at uh, work that is less predictable, more of like branchy work where there's a lot of ifs, if else's, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a really good flexible platform. Like CPUs, you can write a lot of code on, you can do whatever you want with. Um, you're just not going to get maximum speed if you need that level of parallelism, that level of scale. Um, that's what the GPU is really good at. So th I, I think that's ho hopefully that's a good, thing, good yeah. high level. Yeah. How how long for what when we th when you think of a GPU, mm -hmm. the modern version of it, um, how how long has that been around? Like the really the emphasis of it, and then my second part, I guess, to the question is, um, when did we stumble on? Uh, I had a I got a few years ago to go to Nvidia, part of another project, and I got to meet their CEO Jensen, who's larger than life. He is. He is a character. I really enjoyed meeting him. But you'd when I listen to him, I love innovators that do this. Somehow they were the ones who thought of all the multiple purposes 
of, <laughs> I saw the GPU coming in this way. And I'm not saying he didn't, but I. it seems like whenever I bump into his, a visionary CEO or whatever, there's a lot less accident that, uh, you know, in their mind, it's way more purposeful. But so when did modern GPUs come around? And then when did somebody, do you think, in the way we're thinking about it now, say, holy smokes, this isn't just great at killing orcs or, uh, you know, making the abominable snowman look fantastic in Monsters, Inc. It can do all of these other things. Yeah, so uh, I, I, the original few generations of GPUs in like the in the in the late '90s, they were fixed function, which just means that um, they hadn't gotten to the level of being able to program GPUs for non like drawing pixels on a screen kind of work. Uh -huh. um, that generation came very close, like it, it, uh, both uh, ATI at the time and Nvidia uh, pushed out uh, products that, that that had programmable cores essentially which gave us the flexibility to do, in theory, whatever we wanted with it. There were huge limitations with the design at the time, right. gotten much better over time. I would say that, um, that, like the early 2000s, that was a big turning point in when companies realized that the more cores that you throw at the problem, like the, the faster that problem gets solved. And in some cases, you can extract huge efficiencies um, if you know what that design looks like. If you know, okay, I have a 2000 core GPU I wanna use, Okay, how do I distribute my work over 2,000 cores? You know, that th that became a really big thing. Um, what we've seen over time, though, is um, is that GPU companies they just keep adding more cores to the problem. Like the mm -hmm. GPUs, just they get they, they go from you know 2,000, 4,000, 6,000, 18,000 now, and we're talking even bigger than that in the future. Um, the 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 downside with adding more cores is that it's really difficult for humans to uh, write code that scales really well across tens of thousands of cores. So like the the the, the design of the GPU stayed relatively the same over the past 20, 25 years. Um, th th that certainly holds true. Um, the, the, the workloads have gotten much bigger because I think people just have realized that, oh, I can like, even with simulation, I think it's a great example. Like, you know, back in the day, it was like, okay, can I simulate like this one meter cube only? Mm -hmm. And now it's like, can I simulate the entire earth? Like we're talking right. about simulating like, plastics over millions of years now and so like right. the complexity of the problem has increased significantly um, but the problem is a lot of these other <clears throat> solutions all they do is throw more cores at the problem more cores at the problem and and, it, and it, at some point um, it becomes necessary to like rethink the entire architecture of the system and say well what if we just want to solve a modern simulation problem what does this system look like throwing away all of the technical debt, all of the old architecture decisions that were driven by technical limitations, design limitations, thought processes, just things like that. Right. Um, that's what we're doing. We, 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 we said, okay, look, what if what if all 25,000 companies that, want, that are gonna build complex parts, um, what if they all just bought a chip and the chip solved that problem specifically for them? Right. Um, and they didn't have to do anything special and it didn't cost a lot of money and it didn't consume a lot of power at scale. Um, but it was it was sized for their modern workload. So they didn't have to say, oh, I got to go build a data center now to solve like the specific problem. And to your point, I have to go find some software vendor that may or may not do the best thing with it. There's some limitations there. There's some communication issues, you know, across the stack. Why don't we just solve this entire problem all at once and then deliver just like a package solution that, that is optimized for this, um, this, the, this simulation. When, when you talk about uh, core sizes, is this, d does, does the card itself materially change its size? So, for example, I remember my original 
286 computer with its turbo button. I thought that sucker was so fast it left skid marks on my desktop. Like it, like it was, and the dot matrix printer that came with it, if I turned that thing on now, we'd go through the active shooter protocol. People would just think like there's something going on in the building. And of course, you know, 25, 30 years later, we have um, the CPU, not the GPU, but the CPU in that thing is exponentially more powerful. But but the machine, the physical dimensions, aren't that much uh, bigger. When you talk about the cores on the card, is the card, are we just shrinking like a CPU? Is it approximately a similar size? And um, sort of related to that, is it drawing the same amount of power? In other words, yes, we do more cores, but they're much more efficient than doing that? Or um, are they just getting exponentially bigger and now we're distributing them across large footprint? Yeah, so there are some design vectors when you're designing silicon. Um, so the, the the first thing is transistors have gone a lot smaller over time. That's right. like this great. Thank you, TSMC, Samsung, Global Foundries, Intel. Uh, the, the transistor has gotten a lot smaller over the past 30 years, not past 50 years. That, that's really great. Um, what that means is if you think of just one design vector is I can stuff more cores, more stuff into the same area of silicon. Mm. That's really great. Um, what also happened as transistors got smaller is they consume less power. Mm. So if I have a GPU from the early 2000s, for, my, for example, that might have 900 cores, the one today might have 18,000 cores and consume right. so much power and be similarly sized. Okay. That's great. That, 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 that's super nice. There, there are some downsides, like power density is really high now, um, right. like per area of silicon, that leads to huge problems. Um, but also like we're reaching the end of traditional transistor scaling, which means that um, you know if if a GPU company wants to make a GPU that's twice as fast, they have to figure out a way to not rely on the transistor itself, the, the basic building block of that chip, to to give them that the ability to put so many more cores in and still consume the same amount of power. Um, the, the, there is a we we internally like we measure this, and there is a there is a plateau that we've that we've seen over the past three four years in this efficiency metric, where essentially it's like I can throw more cores to the problem in one like specific area and in, in, in one in one chip, um, but the power just starts to increase like significantly and performance doesn't increase as much as we we would hope. So right. um, it's gotten much better. What I will say is, if you look at a modern GPU board, I'm looking around. I used to have them all around here. Um, <laughs> a modern GPU board, they've gotten smaller. Actually, what's really interesting versus the versus the older ones, right. but the the problem is that the they consume so much power that cooling is much bigger issue. So so that's where a lot of the time goes now is like how do we cool this thing really efficiently how do we at really high wattages and like higher voltages than we were used to initially like how is how do we make that more efficient and so there are there are companies now that just specialize in cooling essentially just to make sure that these 1000 watt chips uh you you can deploy them and they won't blow up your house or they right. won't blow up your rack or whatever so as we've talked about the role of um, the infrastructure, the benefit of all of these tools we've talked about, hopefully to help human beings flourish, and they're gonna be applied in all these different ways, not just manufacturing, although that's the one we kind of focused on today. There is a cost to buy traditional infrastructure today. There's power things. Can you talk about what is, what do you, what does the world mean by silicon IP? And um, what role does it play to help serve this customer base, but maybe mitigate some of the constraints of um, the infrastructure, the GPU infrastructure as we know it today. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Silicon IP, uh, 
we're a silicon ip company what that means is we we, we spent all of our time uh designing what the chip will look like how it'll what, what does ip stand for if you don't mind me just intellectual property okay um, not, yeah it, it's it's interesting it, it's used it's it, it's the same like legal term as ip it doesn't it's not a different word but it means something completely different in, in our case it's like the actual code it is intellectual property as well like patents and right. and proprietary you know algorithms and things that we invent but in the end, it's just like a code base that, that we can deliver to a customer. Um, when we talk about Silicon IP, all we focus on is designing the, the chip. Um, what that means is, um, you know, we work with the customer and the customer says, Darwesh, I want to go make a data center chip. Um, they don't want to go or they don't have the expertise to go design the, the IP that we develop, like the graphics mm -hmm. IP, the ray tracing IP, the simulation IP. We're really good at that side. Um, so we kind of partner with our customers. They license our IP. They go make the chip out of it and they go sell mm -hmm. that chip. We take a royalty at the end of it. So um, there are some other companies that do this. There are actually a lot of IP companies in the world today. Like I'll give you a great example. If you look at your, your phone, there is mm -hmm. a application processor in the middle of a phone. It could be made by Qualcomm, Apple, Samsung, MediaTek, or any, any of those mobile companies. Um, not all of the stuff that goes in that chip is made by that company. They license IP from companies like us. That specialize in those parts. So there are companies that specialize in like networking, companies that specialize in CPUs, for example, GPUs, um, network, uh, 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 neural processing units, video encoders. Lots of there's lots of uh, parts in the ecosystem. And so what we would do is we just work with those companies that go license it to go make the chip. What that means for us is that we don't spend as much money speculatively making chips. We design the IP. We have a customer at the end of it that wants to license it that will go spend the money tape out the chip and we can work with them really closely on that so um it's a, it's a really interesting like it's almost a hidden uh business in the entire uh tool chain of like ip all the way down into a server that you can buy put into a data center um uh, we have really good visibility into the entire end-to-end -end. that's why yeah, i think we're on this where we're having this conversation is yeah. you're at the very end of that right or very right. close to end of that where you might not care who develops the IP um, but it does matter um, like our guidance um, in in helping uh, customers at every level down down the supply chain um, in understanding how they should architect the server where they should put the servers in the data center um, and all those things really do matter and they and our goal is to make sure we extract as much efficiency as possible out of the the design that we make as well as the the tool chain and going into the servers into the phones into the consoles and all those kinds of things yeah besides the obvious for me benefit of because uh, your customers are my customers right they 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 um uh, get this uh, intellectual, they license this from you, this intellectual property, they apply it in their process and the things that they're making, and they're deployed in facilities like mine to perform all of these things and many that we haven't talked about. Um, and so we want those things to be, uh, one, we want to serve our customer, uh, but we want them to be as wildly efficient as, as possible. One of the things that caught me caught my imagination about this um, uh, the role you guys play is the potential for agility. I don't care what organization you are, the larger you get, the more you have to harness the creative chaos. I don't mean that as a criticism. It's just a fact. And, um, and so you get more bureaucracy, you get more overhead, you get, um, there's benefit to that but usually it increased cost. It's not just the efficiency of the design. I'm not trying to pick on any of the GPU um, designers that we might think of, the big names that we might think of, 
but it is, um, you, you can't help it. There's committees involved. There's all these other things. I'm not saying that in the, um, in the world that you live in, that that doesn't exist, but it's, it's almost like this new modern world of, I have this, um, I have this almost like a Delta Force team. I love my military analogies, but like I've got this, this team, this elite team that can build these tools. We're more agile. We can test them quicker. We can get to failure faster so we can get to success faster. Um, and it, and it just leads to, in my experience, uh, more agile response to, uh, the marketplace. Am I overstating that? Do you think that's the right idea to think about this? Is there more that we should be thinking about? I think, you, yes, you're definitely right. We did a couple of additional things, something differently. And a lot of people looked at us and were like, Darwish, you're, you're absolutely, well, there, there are a lot of people said we were insane by, by trying this in the first place. And then I said, well, we're also going to try to not hire people that are in this industry in the first place. Mm. Um, and, and that sounds insane. Like, Darwish, you're going to make a chip. You're going to hire people that... That, that don't make GPUs today, right, from right. your competitors. And and the, the reason for that is we thought that it would it'd be good to take a, a like a really completely fresh approach to the problem. And what that, what that means is like, yes, we, we do the computer, like we, we install the tool and we see what it's like from the end user perspective. And right. we say, okay, like what's really happening here and how can we make this better? And hiring people that are not from the industry are great because they ask the dumbest questions, which is what I do all the time. It's like, okay, why is it like this? Oh, okay. And inevitably find answers like, oh, yeah, you know, in the 90s, it was this limitation. And so this has been like grandfathered in for the past 15 generations of products right. or whatever. And if you hire people that that have been doing that for so long, I mean, we interviewed these guys and their, their feedback was, we'll just do the same thing for you. And I'm like, no, 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 we want something really different, right? And and to, to your point, you're absolutely right. It's it's half its agility in, in being able to um, to try out lots of different little things and see like what what the most impact is. Once you once you pick a problem to solve, it's really great to say, okay, here's the full end to end. Here's what the user experience is. Here are the really painful parts. Oh, great, we can accelerate like all of these in a new chip design. Solve that completely for the user, um, and they don't have to like worry about these crazy limitations that have existed for so long. So it's agility in that perspective as well as like let's hire people that 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 intentionally can ask special questions I'll, I'll put them I'll put special questions that other people <laughs> didn't ask um, and some of them are just, it's a waste of time sometimes like right. it's a basic okay Darwesh this is it's for it's for a good reason let me tell you the reason right but the things that are that are not good reasons anymore at least those are that's where we get the huge you know, advantage the value and and lots of large companies to your point that opinion that voice would never be heard it's just not possible because right. you know you're selling 40 million of this part the specific design a year why would you change that there's no point in changing that right so that's kind of all that we could provide to the market is essentially that we take a new approach to your point we're very agile i mean we we spent three years three and a half years doing development on our part on our chip design and it's available in the market today it'll be in silicon at the end of the year but that's crazy three years to go from like basically no code written to a fully developed product that is faster and more efficient than the market the market leader today is is right. is a, I think a testament to to how silicon startups can be really agile right. which is something that i don't think you typically hear like a chip company being agile but i think it's great that we can do it you're making a tool that's at the heart of solving this big problem for itself like that's uh you know while i build data yeah. centers i need data you know i need materials to build the walls better or whatever but i'm not a material wall builder i'm just a consumer of it you're a designer and a consumer of it 
yeah, I think it, it, it's really it's really fun that we can sort of dog feed our, our, ourselves with our, with our technology. Even with rendering, like we we want to play around and see how how much faster and, and how much better we can make this this flow. And like, I think it's really funny to think about it from a from a human perspective. Like, I'm a I'm not the best artist, and I don't have a really good patience. But it's really good to like expose my flaws in that as a person, but also just to learn uh, what people are used to in that space. It becomes really important as well. And you're absolutely right. It's like it's really nice to be able to dog feed our, our own technology to ourselves. But it's also important because um, the simulation work that the the simulation tools that we develop. I'll give you a great example. Like in in the optics space that you mentioned with fiber, for example, um, you know. If you can use both technology to to better simulate, you know, a, a laser um, that's going to drive a fiber optic link or a lens or an optic assembly, for example, mm. or a full pluggable module, that'll also help, you know, the implementation of our customer silicon in the data center, which uses more efficient optics as mm. a result of this. And so you you can create a really really nice virtuous uh, feedback loop. Um, if you try to address, or what we're doing, trying to address the the, the core foundational aspect of making things, um, but making them better, make them cheaper, make right. them faster. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's really exciting. Um, I, I think it's really complementary to AI in the sense that, um, you know, to your point, if you, you want to ask it a question, it's also good to have AI asking the simulation lots of questions as well. It can come up with lots of better questions that we can come up with. We see AI being really useful in those spaces where, um, it's really good at it'll be really good at controlling um, the, the flow and the outcome of simulations. Right. Uh, but the simulation is still done in in a, re in a real physics environment where you can like look back and see, okay, why did it make this decision? Why did that particle hit that thing? Like, and that's not a black box necessarily. So it's really good complementary. I'm really excited to see and, and to show demos of, of how this can work together um uh, to, to provide some really really good outcomes for every enterprise on the planet i gotta know how did you were you sitting around one day skating there in the bay area and uh you know having a great time you said man i want to go do this how did you get involved in doing something like this yeah that's a great question i was one of those guys I, you know i like to play a lot of games and gpus were expensive this was in 2013 2014 right. Um, I, my background is in the, in the, in the data center space. So I, I was, I was not quite at your level, perhaps I'll, I'll put it that way. I was putting servers in, in racks, um, putting racks in data centers, figuring out where, where, where they went. Um, I have, um, you know, through work, I met a lot of people that were building render farms for film studios and, mm. you know, over dinner at the, you know, you know, when people complain about like yeah. work or, you know, things like that. And, and, and it's just really interesting to hear it. Oh, I got, you know, we, we built a 50,000 core render farm and it still takes us a year to render a film. Like really a year? How's that going to work if you're making a movie and you have a budget and you have a, you have a deadline you need to hit right. before we can go to theaters. Right. And it's right. like rendering is not the final stage of the process. It's not, it's like in the middle of the, the process, there's right. a lot of post things to happen. And so it became really interesting just for me to understand like, why is this so bad? Like I thought we're in the future of like, feature technology age, right? Like right. space age, we, you know, why are we spending a year waiting for a render to come back? And the more I dug into it, the more it became clear that this was like something that, that the the demands had grown from a user. Like I want to see, I want every movie I want to watch now is like Avatar 2. I think Dave, I think we can agree on that, right? Like every time you see something that's really good, it, it, it pushes the demand that we have. Yeah. But the problem is on the flip side, like there's no improvement in, in computer architecture or chips or software that's getting people to that point. So they, right. so the artists keep getting crushed and more crushed and more crushed and more crushed. There right. are books about like essentially crunch time 
in game development and film development because tools are lacking and right. like people don't think about how long it takes to make these things and so they just get stuck and the artist gets crushed by it and so I, it, it just became really interesting just to think about like i love playing games love watching movies i love this kind of 3, 3d content um that's coming out but it's limited to like five or six companies in the world and just the the tools are so expensive they're hard to learn it's just crazy it's i think i think this is an industry that needs to get um revolutionized and i think we've at both we found a way to take the graphics part and bring it into simulation which gives us a great like dual market opportunity yeah uh, to solve the enterprise side as well as like let's make things look better great things look even better right and when we tap this in to healthcare, where they take a voodoo doll like me a dude in his 50s with a certain ethnicity and and genetic predispositions and and these tools then can compare me to the protocols that other voodoo dolls like me went through to get to their optimal health. All of this other stuff, it's going to create even more demand. Like it's just exponential. Yeah. But when it, we create that demand, I want them to create the demand. But I need, to your point earlier about the AI tools helping you develop even more efficiency. So that requires uh, cores deployed. Mm -hmm. I need um, systems that are protecting the white hats from the black hats, you know, so they're not interfering with any of this stuff. So that requires a digital defense. All of this requires compute and process, which is another way of saying of power. I, we don't want to heat the earth up to an, un, you know, this is the only spaceship we got, so we don't want to burn it up. Um, and so this complexity of pursuing the opportunity that comes from the infrastructure without at the same time, creating an environment that's not sustainable, like a literal, it's too much power, we've got too much thing, too many things going on. And I, you know, I'm really bullish on the potential of this stuff, but we got to live in this world um, that we're making. And so one of the things that sort of the theme I think I've heard you say throughout this is, as we go about pursuing these things, we cannot lose sight of making them efficient. We cannot, we have a finite amount of resources, intellectual power to think about these things, but also, the, uh, we can't just keep stacking cores up and making things bigger and bigger and bigger just for the sake of making them bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. Um, they've got to be more and more efficient. Yeah, I, I think we're getting to the point where we're going to have to walk a tightrope of like, uh, we want to, to develop more products, want people to buy more things, all that kind of good. We want people to to experience everything as much right. as possible, as, as much, literally as much as possible. But at the current scale that we're hit, like efficiency-wise, it's just it's just not going to happen. There's too many people in the world. There's too much stuff, right. and the stuff consumes too much power. So if you think about it, like you're absolutely right, and and I think our mission is to your point is just to make sure that um, we can solve problems, like future problems. It it can totally be done really efficiently, like orders of magnitude more efficiently for these key foundational uh, problems that the world's going to have. Um, but it's really important to make sure that power consumption overall just doesn't increase and, and becomes less of a, an impact on the world, because I can imagine if, you know, if you, it's, it, 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 there, there are some VCs that like to think that the market for gaming is like 8 billion people. But if you imagine like every 8 billion people buying GPUs, that's a lot of GPUs you're going to have to sell right yeah. every three years or every two years. And you do use some quick napkin math on like how much power that is. It becomes out of hand really quickly. So I think. Um, I think it's a great market. I think um, uh, computer graphics is is becoming culturally really important. Like mm. everyone 
is really comfortable now with seeing animated pieces. They're comfortable with going and seeing a, a watch advertisement. That's complete consumer. It's completely computer generated. Like right. there's nothing really about it at all. It's complete rendering, um, but it looks perfect, right? And you can go buy a Rolex because hey, it looks like what's going to look like, and that's going to become really important. And and I, I think the 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 concern that we have is just essentially power consumption is going to keep increasing. People like you are going to have to figure out how to build multi gigawatt data centers, buildings. Yeah, <laughs> which what? is fun and scary. But you look at the embracement, the embracing of large language models, and, and that, while well, that's getting a lot of attention, there are so many other applications out there that are really pursuing the benefits of this infrastructure. Do you, th do you think the marketplace for you guys is going to double, quadruple? Is it, is, it, is it predictable? How do you, what's the potential, I guess, in general, and then um, Silicon IP providers like you guys, do you see your role growing um, even more relevant? I'm, I, and I don't mean that like as a straw man. I'm really curious to hear yeah. what you think about it. Yeah. So I think your second question is really interesting. It's, it's something that 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 has changed over I think the past like six years is um, a lot more companies now are looking to make chips mm -hmm. um, than previously. Like if you looked at seven eight years ago. Microsoft wasn't making silicon, right? Apple was very new to make silicon. Now, right. and now all these companies are becoming really vertically integrated. Um, the cloud providers, and you, you, you know this really, really well. Yeah. Cloud providers love to make their own chips to to get better power efficiency, cost right. metrics. I think most importantly, and so, I, and so I think from an IP provider perspective, we're in a great position because um, everyone's going to want to make chips. Everyone's going to want some differentiation in their cloud platforms. And that's what we can provide, right? To your point about us being agile and just providing a better product, um, we can enable that for those guys. Um, uh, in, in terms of, I think, like how the market's going to evolve, I, I, I'll say that uh, the limitation today for the market growing is the easy availability of the technology that we're building. Mm -hmm. um, it's currently just it's just too expensive to mm -hmm. to make lots of movies if you're unless you're Pixar or right. you know, the, the really large studios. On the enterprise side, I mean, unless you're going to go build a data center that, that can emulate a wind tunnel for your $1 billion wind tunnel that, that you built a few years ago, right. you, it's just, it's not going to be cost effective. Like startups can't do this today. Right. And so the, the, there's a, in both consumer graphics and in digital twins, there is a huge gap between what the big guys can do and what everyone else can do kind of in the market. And maybe like you and I can do some stuff on our laptops. But it's not going to be like something that we can really scale. We can we can't simulate the you know, uh, you know complex things with that. And so I think the market's going to grow. Um, it's going to grow very quickly because um, it's just going to be much less expensive to simulate things versus making them. And so that's going to be the driving factor is literally just the cost difference, the cost efficiency that you can gain from that. Um, but it's just it's not possible today. So we're really looking forward to to releasing our products and to, to letting people use this because we think that, that that market is like not measurable today. It's really difficult for an analyst to go in and look and say, okay, this is like this many billions of dollars because they just can't simulate, they can't do it today. Right. Um, but in the future, we think everyone can do it. And we even think that there are content creators that are like just regular people, like teenagers, kids, people like you and me, maybe, maybe, maybe eventually we'll be sitting here you know, creating like actual like five second animations of the things that we think are cool that we thought about in our heads. We just didn't know, didn't have the skills, didn't have the the good access to easy tools and technology to make those things. But we think there, the the market's really limited here. It's just the number of people that can access the the, the technology. 
Um, you know, if you think of uh, a company like Etsy, right, which is like enabling people to create things on the side, right. uh, create little businesses, like you can imagine if, what, what if that was enabled by a digital twins, a simulation environment where maybe you're not just like knitting things now, you're going into like making real products. Um, and, and so I think the market's going to change very significantly. It's not going to be three or four companies making everything for everyone. It'll be a lot of people making you know, lots of little things um, that are optimized for their use case. And I think um, what we'll see just like a much better uh, product market fit for products that come out that are tailored. Like the shoe, I think, is a great example, right? It's like, okay, we, we know how the shoe is going to behave. Dave, I know you need this exact shoe. We simulated this exact shoe on a foot that looks like yours right. on, on the on, on the sidewalk that's right outside this house, but on a computer. And that's like a perfect product market fit there. And you just can't achieve that today because you can't simulate it. Right. That's what I love about conversations like this, because I want to give you the ability on a small scale or a large scale for you to get involved in something like this to use your imagination and create freedom for yourself. You win, they win, the customer wins. What a great idea. Yeah, it's a huge win for everyone. And um, in, in the end, it's just, there's less waste, right? Because you're not like trying to make one shoe that can sell to like everyone. Why right. even bother? Well, right. like why, why go through that effort? And you can think of like, there's an end to end here where like someone can scan their foot, send it into a service service will go like design simulate automate like all this kind of like you can think of a full end-to-end where it's like you can get a perfect fit no waste because it's for your it's for your shoe you have the design forever by the way so you, you, if it goes off the shelf like you don't have to go find another shoe like right this is the problem that i have like you, you know a shoe will stop being sold and it's like well now i have to go like online i have to go buy a shoe or i have to go to a store to like try it on i get a really limited i i, I can talk forever about yeah. this sorry i'll, I, we'll I, do I'll it. stop there but it's, it's crazy like you can there's so much efficiency that you can gain from just optimizing these little parts of the I say little parts as yeah. if it's like easy to but the, 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 these key but like really important parts yeah. of um, of the end-to-end -end for for like that idea all the way down to a product that like actually works perfectly right. on first fit for that user you're right we could do this all day but let's uh <laughs> let's pause there darwish thank you so much for coming on hey if people want to learn more about you how do they uh how do they find you yeah, um, we have a we have a website, Bolt Graphics. You, you guys can uh, can learn more about uh, the the problems that we're trying to solve, as well as contact us there. I'm available on LinkedIn. Okay. Um, I don't know if we can do like a little thing. I can include like my contact info. Yeah, after. So, we'll link. Yeah. We'll put the links down below for everybody to get to. Uh, thanks for coming on today. I really appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's a great conversation. It's always great to. Feel to talk to people, uh, people like you that, that that understand the problem and that are in the industry. I love right. it. And we're curious <laughs> and we're learning. So thank you again. And hey, look, if you enjoyed the conversation, like us. And if you loved it, subscribe. We'll see you next time, everybody. Have a good one.